Hello, and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number 12, recorded on August 26, 2022. I'm Albie Messing from the Weissman Center at the University of Wisconsin, and with me today for return visits are Rachel Battaglia from Harvard Medical School and Abby Olson from the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome to you both. Before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone to please send feedback to AXDRUpodcast at Wasteman, that's W-A-I-S-M-A-N dot W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. Today, our topics will be a discussion of one recent publication and then several questions that were emailed in after the last podcast. Let's deal with the publication first. This paper, which is in press in the journal Redox Biology, is by Viedma Poyados et al. and entitled Alexander Disease GFAP R239C Mutant Shows Increased Susceptibility to Lipoxidation and Elicits Mitochondrial Dysfunction and Oxidative Stress. Actually, the goal of this paper, like many such cell biology papers, is to understand how a single amino acid change in GFAP alters its function. And honestly, we don't know very much about GFAP function, so the only function we can easily evaluate is its ability to form the network of 10 nanometer filaments that we see as part of the cytoskeleton. That's not so much a function as perhaps you could call it a property. These authors also had a particular interest in oxidative stress, both as a cause of cellular dysfunction and as a consequence of the change in GFAP. I think the key message for patients and families here is that there are changes that occur in GFAP beyond simply the single change in an amino acid, but we're still trying to figure out the significance of these changes. In addition, by comparing the effects of one variant with another in these cell culture assays, we may eventually have a convenient way to predict disease severity. At least that is a hope for the future. So Rachel, can you briefly explain the author's approach to this problem and the main results of this paper? Definitely. So as Albie said, the main goal of this paper was to look at how oxidative stress is interacting with GFAP mutations in Alexander disease. So to do this, they generated mutations in GFAP at arginine-239, and as we know, this is one of the most frequently mutated residues in Alexander disease patients, and they were mostly looking at arginine to cysteine substitutions. They expressed these mutants in astrocytoma cells, and this is important to keep in mind, um, the cell model that they're using here. So astrocytoma cells are cancer cells, uh, which are obviously not the same as normal astrocytes in the brain. Uh, there's actually a lot of oxidative you know, stress that's going on in cancer cells because they're using a lot more energy. So it's important to understand that there's that cancer background going on in, in these um, patients. But there are a lot of advantages to using astrocytoma lines. They're easy to grow in culture. They are constantly dividing um, and they have some properties of astrocytes too. So a lot of the proteins that are there in astrocytes will be there in these cells. So it's a better model than um, you know, other generic cell lines. So they express the, the R239C mutant in these astrocytoma cells. 
And then they do two major things. They examine the effects of these GFAP mutations on oxidative stress, and they test the effects of increasing oxidative stress on the GFAP mutations. Maybe this would be a good point to give a definition of oxidative stress. Of course, yeah. So oxidative stress occurs when cells are unable to manage the amount of reactive oxygen species that are present. And reactive oxygen species are toxic molecules that are formed from oxygen as a byproduct of normal cellular metabolism. Reactive oxygen species can also be formed because of environmental factors like ultraviolet radiation. And a common example of a reactive oxygen species that you probably heard of before is hydrogen peroxide. Now, under the category of reactive oxygen species, some of the most toxic are free radicals. And free radicals are molecules that are very highly reactive. And because of this, they're very toxic to the cell. And the reason why they are so reactive is that they have an uneven number of electrons. So if you remember from high school chemistry, electrons are these small subatomic particles that orbit atoms, and they are most stable when they're in even pairs. So when an atom loses an electron, it's going to want to take an electron from any source possible. And you can imagine that in the presence of these free radicals, which are missing electrons, there's the chain reaction inside the cell of electron stealing uh, between different structures. And this is really damaging to proteins and the cell membranes, which are made up of lipids. Luckily, the cell has different methods to neutralize these reactive oxygen species. And that includes proteins that can convert these reactive molecules into less harmful products. So I mentioned hydrogen peroxide. Uh, there's an enzyme called catalase that converts this into water and oxygen. And then antioxidants can also combat these reactive oxygen species. And antioxidants are chemicals that can donate an electron without becoming reactive themselves. So they end that chain reaction of electron stealing. And some examples of this are vitamin E and, and vitamin C. So mitochondria are relevant to oxidative stress because they're actually a major source of oxidative um, reactive oxygen species for the cell. Uh, that's because these mitochondria are compartments in the cell where oxygen and sugar are converted into cellular energy. And this process is called cellular respiration. And cellular respiration, while it generates energy for the cell that's really critical for cell movements and cell communication and all sorts of processes, another byproduct of this reaction is reactive oxygen species, which can promote oxidative stress within the cell. And mitochondria change quite a bit in terms of size and shape. Um, and I thought one of the interesting findings in this paper was that the mitochondria as a consequence of expressing mutant GFAP became elongated. What that means for function, I have no idea. Do you? There's a couple of things that elongated mitochondria could do. We know that mitochondria are recycled um, sometimes within the cell. So can imagine that the machinery that recycles these mitochondria might, might have issues if they're becoming elongated. It's a larger compartment to degrade. So that's one thing. And then if you can't, you know, recycle these mitochondria, they're sitting around in the cell and they're accruing damage. So they might actually be producing more reactive oxygen species. And um, that could obviously be toxic to the cell. And 
Another th thing is that it's been shown that mitochondria can be transferred between cells so they can move from astrocytes to neurons. And we know this is actually impaired in Alexander disease. So th this increase in length could be affecting the ability of the astrocytes to transfer the mitochondria to neurons. So let me ask Abby a question here. Oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction are common themes in other neurodegenerative diseases as well, such as Parkinson's. Do you have any ideas about how astrocyte dysfunction might contribute to those disorders as well? Yes, um, actually, yeah, that's a major area of focus of, of my own personal research. So, so Parkinson's disease and related disorders are in some ways disorders that are due to, to failure of, of energy generation. So all of these mechanisms that we're talking about for Alexander disease, the oxidative stress, so the difficulty with mitochondria, those, as you said, are also um, present, uh, at least to a, a large extent in Parkinson's disease as well. And we know that uh, astrocytes are extremely important for supporting neurons metabolically. So they do things like, like uh, Rachel said of transferring mitochondria. They also have many secreted chemicals um, and metabolites, little sort of pieces of um, you know energy, protein, sugars, all those things that they, they send to the neurons. And many of those processes are, are thought to be abnormal in Parkinson's disease as well. So I do think the sort of findings in you know, this, this paper that are about Alexander disease are likely relevant to neurodegenerative diseases more, more broadly, potentially. And Rachel also mentioned antioxidants and cellular defense mechanisms against these reactive oxygen species. I know there's a lot of interest in antioxidants as treatments certainly nutritional supplements and, and maybe treatments. Have any of those really reached the point of clinical use? Right. So the level of evidence has not been high enough for us to really recommend those as a treatment. The, the one exception might be in some of the ataxias, the evidence is a bit stronger for um, recommending antioxidants. Um, it, it's still still not sort of a, a class one level of evidence, you know, the strongest recommendation that we would give scientifically. Um, but there's definitely, as you said, been a lot of intrigue and certainly patients are quite interested in the idea of taking antioxidants. Um, my own personal advice to, to patients is usually, you know, as, as long as it's um, not harmful, meaning you're not taking um, grams and grams and grams of vitamins and things like that, then there's there's likely not much of a downside if, if people want to try something like that. But the scientific evidence isn't quite there yet. Well, I should confess that I was one of the reviewers on this paper. And in the original version, they had only looked at one variant, R239C. And one of my requests, which I'm very glad that they followed, was to look at a few additional variants, because as we know, there are over 100 different variants in GFAP that cause Alexander disease. So you'd like to know how common a theme this is about oxidative stress and, and mitochondrial dysfunction. And they added in Two more still at R239. One is R239H and R239G. 
And I, I thought it was really interesting that the findings with R239H were very similar to the extent that they studied it to R239C, but that the R239G variant seemed to have milder effects. For what it's worth, you know, we know there are three patients with uh, who've been published with the R239G variant, and they all had later onset disease. One was onset at the age of nine, one at 27, one at 32. Um, and that's very different than what happens with nearly all patients with the C and H variants who typically have very early onset and severe disease. So it'll be interesting to see how these cellular models and findings might eventually be used to uh, perhaps predict the effects of particular variants. So Rachel, what do you think the key message is for patients and families from this paper? It's interesting, um, the effects of the oxidative stress that they're seeing here, you know, that the, it's this vicious cycle where the mutations actually promote oxidative stress in the cell, and then the oxidative stress in the cell is promoting issues with the protein and, and increasing aggregation. So it'll be interesting to see in the future how, how modifying this pathway and reducing oxidative stress could maybe improve situations for the cell. And what do you think the next steps should be for this research? Definitely looking at more mutations. I mean, they look at three mutations at the same residue in the cell, as you were saying, but it'd be interesting to know at other positions on G of AP, if you're making these substitutions to cysteine, which is especially susceptible to this oxidative stress and, and um, addition of, you know, lip oxidation, the covalent adding of lipids of these residues, you know, is it is this a similarity that's happening in patients where they have cysteine substitutions, or is it also dependent on where in the protein this is happening? Right. And for all the other variants that don't involve cysteine as well, we, we need of to know course. what happens there. Okay, let's move on to email. Again, you can send your questions to axdrupodcast at wasteman.wisc.edu, and we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Please send any feedback about these podcasts to the same email. By the way, for privacy reasons, I'll no longer use first names of the people submitting the questions. Alexander disease is such a rare disease that it doesn't take much for individuals to become identifiable. And that isn't an appropriate risk for us to be taking here. So I'll just dive in with a question or questions. Beginning with question one. I have a question about the last podcast. During your conversation with Dr. Abby Olson, she talked about ataxia and specifically dizziness. I was wondering if there were any treatments available for dizziness. My daughter has severe dizziness and just sits all day. She cannot lie down because she says the room is spinning. It has really taken away her quality of life. Any help or information would be greatly appreciated. Abby? Sure, let me, let me start by saying dizziness is a very common complaint that brings people to see a neurologist. And it can be a little bit of a tricky issue in that Dizziness is um, just not a great word. So the English language is, is lacking in wonderful words to describe the many sensations that people can experience that are termed dizziness. 
Um, but just so that we're kind of starting from a, a common language basis, the way I think of dizziness in terms of general English, at least, is really any sense of unsteadiness or imbalance. And that sense of unsteadiness or imbalance can arise due to actually many, many different problems. And so neurologists have their own specific language that we use to talk about what kind of problems might be causing that sense of dizziness. Um, for the purposes, though, of the patient in communicating to your neurologist, one of the things that's most helpful for us to know actually is the time course of the dizziness. So we tend to think about it as being either acute and fairly constant, meaning you sort of all of a sudden dizziness was experienced and it's mostly just staying there and not going away versus episodic, meaning that it's coming and going versus chronic and fairly constant. That's a helpful categorization for us as neurologists because the different entities that cause dizziness can be kind of divided into those three different categories. Um, dizziness can also, uh, as I said, occur due to dysfunction in, in many different parts of the body. So um, it can actually be due to a problem with the cardiovascular system. It can be due to a problem um, with the ear, with the nerves that go to the ear or a problem with the brain. And I say all of this because one of the most important things to do is actually to get a careful physical exam from a neurologist. Usually the neurologist can identify the source of the dizziness in terms of which part of the body is causing it based on things that they see on the physical exam. Let me just interject one point. There's, a, I would say, a tidbit of evidence that GFAP is expressed in a particular cell type in the inner ear. That has not been validated by many other labs, but it's worth keeping in mind that maybe at some point down the line, we'll learn that GFAP mutations are having an effect at the level of the inner ear. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I have to say, I didn't know that. And that, that would actually really matter because the treatments for dizziness do depend on kind of what is causing the dizziness exactly. And so that's why it's worth getting that good physical exam. So all the more reason really to, to go in then and, and get that exam to make sure that, you know, that we understand where this dizziness is coming from, basically. For cerebellar uh, associated dizziness in particular, um, which is probably at least part of what's going on here, there are a few different treatments that can be helpful. Um, the first is physical therapy. Physical therapy can be helpful in several ways. A physical therapist can work on um, balance training, can also work on uh, muscle strengthening. And um, those are all things that can contribute to your overall um, ability to stay steady and balanced. So, um, you know, things like weakness or something, even though they're not the primary cause of the dizziness, if they're also present, will certainly make it worse. So basically you wanna be in the best physical shape possible. So certainly physical therapy is kind of treatment number one. There's also a very specific type of physical therapy that is called uh, vestibular rehabilitation therapy. Um, that is really for people that are having problems in the ear or the nerves to the ear specifically. And what they do is they work on exercises that basically 
strengthen the ears, strengthen the ability of the eyes to stay still, um, which is also a problem with cerebellar diseases. This has been used mostly in ear problems, but it's starting to be used more in cerebellar diseases with, with some evidence that it can be helpful there. The only caveat I'd say with the vestibular therapy, um, you need a, a person who's trained to do it. So, so many ther physical therapists are, but not everybody. Um, it has to be a trained practitioner and the patient needs to be able to um, reliably participate and follow commands and, and do the therapy. So depending on the level of, of cognitive involvement or things like that, it, it may not be possible for all patients with Alexander disease because you have to be able to do the exercises. Um, but that's certainly worth a try. The other thing I'd say about both um, physical therapy and vestibular therapy is that I tell all of my patients who have any sort of neurodegenerative disease that often repeated rounds of treatment are necessary or, or ongoing treatment um, because in reality, these are diseases that do progress. So it's not as simple as um, you know, physical therapy, like if you broke your arm or something where you broke your arm, you're gonna go get physical therapy, rehab the arm and it's gonna be fine you know, the pathology of these diseases is continuing, unfortunately, all the time. So many times you, you may need to have multiple rounds of this to kind of maintain the progress. In addition to that, there are some um, medications that may be helpful for cerebellar dizziness. I want to put in a caveat here and say that I am not a pediatrician. I only treat adults. Um, and so that should be, you know, borne in mind with my answer here. And also, this is not uh, official medical advice, but um, there is some evidence for a few medications in helping with cerebellar dizziness, um, in particular for a, a drug called Empira or for aminopyridine. There's some evidence um, for a drug called chlorzoxazone, which is a muscle relaxant. And then for um, actually an amino acid, uh, which is N-acetyl-DL-leucine. So for each of those three, um, there have been at least small reports, uh, small clinical trials in the case of Vampira even, um, suggesting that they can be helpful for cerebellar dizziness. I will say the patient population in those clinical trials is adults with ataxia and not specifically Alexander disease, let alone children with Alexander disease. So that should be borne in mind and certainly discussed with your neurologist. But there are at least some, some potential medication options. There are also medicines that are used for dizziness more broadly outside of cerebellar dizziness. So again, if an evaluation with a neurologist that suggested that there was some problem from the ear or the nerves to the ear, then those other classes of medications might also be of some benefit. Let's move on to the second question. My daughter was diagnosed by biopsy. All imaging and symptoms pointed to cancer and a biopsy was performed. Would the biopsy cause spreading of the Rosenthal fiber deposits? We feel that after the biopsy, she showed many new symptoms and never recovered to her baseline before the biopsy. You know, unfortunately, this is a, a common story, especially with uh, those patients who have focal brainstem lesions that they're initially confused with a tumor, brainstem gliomas, and there's a, a need to verify that through a biopsy. But as for uh, whether that would cause spreading of the Rosenthal fiber deposits, uh, we're, we're right away going to enter into the realm of speculation here. Certainly from other uh, protein aggregation disorders, there's evidence that there might be intracellular spreading of some protein aggregates that has not yet been demonstrated for Alexander disease. 
we also don't even know whether the Rosenthal fibers cause problems uh, directly or whether they're just a secondary byproduct of the other uh, dysfunction that's taking place in the astrocyte. So, so we don't know if the, the biopsy is causing spreading of the Rosenthal fibers or if it does, whether that really matters at all. As far as whether the biopsy causes other problems, you know, certainly biopsying the brain will cause injury along the track of the biopsy needle. And, uh, and so you, you never want to biopsy any part of the central nervous system without uh, a really good reason to do that. And I would say in the central nervous system, the brainstem in particular is one of the most delicate parts. So I think neurosurgeons are very, very cautious about biopsying the, the brainstem and do that only as a last resort when they feel like they really need to know. That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Rachel and Abby for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Waisman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrett Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time. <laughs>